0: I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Colossians and chapter 1. We're going to continue our studies in this letter of Paul. It was written in AD 61. Paul the Apostle was in prison. He had never visited this young church in Colossae, some hundred miles east of Ephesus, where he had been. And he hears from Pastor Epaphras some good things about this church. But there were a number of problems. And so Paul the Apostle wants to try to help, to instruct and to show them the better way. He wants to point them to the Lord Jesus Christ and he wants to deal with the difficulties. These difficulties are known as the Colossian heresy, there was teaching that was clearly wrong. And he mentions this at the end of chapter 1 and of chapter 2. Some of the things that were being taught were that the people should worship angels. They were teaching that between man and God, the angels were the mediators. And so if you wanted to have your sins forgiven, you must worship angels. And Paul says to the church, no, this is not what we've taught you. There were those teaching philosophy, man's wisdom, which went against the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some were teaching that you needed to add to your faith rituals, ceremonies, things that had been left behind, Jewish practices which were no longer required. They were just signposts pointing to Christ as the only Saviour. And now Christ has come. Paul will teach, we don't need philosophy. We mustn't worship angels. We don't need ceremonies and rituals. And there was one more thing. Some people were teaching that in order to know the forgiveness of sin, you needed to hurt your body, to damage yourself, to go through some practice that caused physical pain to your body. And this would give you relief. And this would give you the pleasure of God. We call it asceticism. And Paul will deal with that. But the argument as Paul continues the prayer that starts in verse 9, as we come down to verse 15, is there is only one answer. Christ is above all things. We only need the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that he has died and risen again, all the ceremonies have been done away with. We don't need any other teaching. We don't need ritual. You don't need to take the pain for your own sin. Christ has come. He has suffered and died once so that all sin can be forgiven. So if you look at verse 15, these are wonderful verses, but there is a degree of theology and complication about them, and I'll do my very best this morning to make them plain. In verse 14, as we considered last week, He lifts up Christ in whom Christ is the one through whom we have redemption. Let me explain to you the word redemption. In ancient times, there was a system of slavery. In some ways, it was a good system. People were cared for. They had a home. They had a job, they had everything supplied, but in many ways it was an awful system. And it was Christians who fought for years to abolish the system. But within that system, there was a way that you could stop being a slave. A price had to be paid to your master. A ransom had to be paid. A price. You couldn't just walk free. You couldn't leave your home and your master and declare that you are now free. The price had to be paid. That's the word used in verse 14. In whom we have redemption. Christ has paid the full price. There isn't any more price to be paid when he shed his blood and when he gave his life. Full redemption was made and because his blood has been spilt, we can have the forgiveness of sin. All sin is taken away. You don't need to cause pain. You don't need to suffer. You don't need to go through an elaborate ritual, thinking that will earn the pleasure of God. No, Christ has died. He's paid the price. He shed the blood of a perfect life, the only perfect life ever to live. So Paul is going to say in verse 15, this Christ, Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God. We can't see God. How do we know what he's like? How can we conceive and understand a God who is so holy, we cannot look at him? You remember Moses, who asked for a sight of God. And the Lord couldn't allow that. And so he allowed a shaft of light to appear. And he hid Moses in the rock, so that he wouldn't be blinded. Well, God sent his only son. But the problem in verse 15, and this is where the Jehovah's Witnesses and the cults go wrong again and again, is they say that Christ was created. Now that cannot be. Because when we look at verse 16, it says, By Him. Who's Him? Christ. Mentioned in verse 15 and 16. Christ created all things. Everything that we can see is created by Christ. Christ didn't create Himself. It's an illogical absurdity. Christ wasn't created. He always was with God, with the Holy Spirit, three persons in one glorious Godhead. They don't have a beginning, they are timeless. And so that's the argument that's going to be made. Now let me pause here. What this passage, these verses, verses 15 to 18 are really all about, is authority. Authority. Who's the authority in your life? I've said this several times in this church. We live in a time where there is a vacuum of authority. For hundreds of years in the UK, the Word of God, the Bible, was the authority for life. Our laws were based upon what the Word of God taught. Marriage was based upon what the Word of God teaches. One man, one woman for life. Gender was based upon what the Word of God teaches. God makes us male or female in the image of God. You see, we had... A basic foundation, a robust foundation. What was happening in the church at Colossae was that the foundation based upon the Old Testament, the laws of God, the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, the teaching of the apostles was being eroded. They were saying, That's not good enough. We need to add to it. You can't believe that all your sin will be taken away and you have to do nothing. No, surely that can't be right. What you need to do is put a belt around yourself that's so tight it causes you pain. You need to take a knife and cut parts of your body To inflict pain. And that will take away some of your sin. They were teaching. Going to church. And no longer going through the rituals and the ceremonies of sacrifices. And certain things that you can eat and not eat. Oh no, we've got to carry on with those things. And Paul is going to say, no, 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 Christ has died. Christ is all we need. The word we use is preeminent. It means Christ surpasses. He's above, he's beyond in rank and importance. He's above everything. And the Colossian church was beginning to challenge that thinking. No, Christ is not sufficient. We need to add to him. We need to add human thinking, the traditions of men. And so Paul says, no, that's not right. And he gives three different explanations for why Christ is sufficient, all-sufficient. Why Christ is preeminent above all things. I haven't mentioned my title this morning. My title is this. Christ first in everything. First in life. First in death. First in eternity. First in the church. First in authority. So here's the three different things. He says Let's look at Christ in relation to the Eternal Father. Let's look at Christ in relation to the created universe. And let's look at Christ in relation to His recreated universe. You know what that is? Here's the universe. Here's humanity. And every one of us has fallen into sin. This world is doomed. This world is fallen. We live in a time of earthquakes and war and strife and problems. In every family there's problems. In every nation there's problems. But Christ is making a new creation. We call it the church. It's not perfect yet, but one day Christ will perfect that church. So that's my three headings I want to prove from these verses. These are vitally important verses. Jehovah's Witnesses attack, verse 15. They totally misunderstand it. So do Mormons and so do the other cults. They say, Christ is is not God. He is a God. He's not the God. And so it's vitally important to understand this. First of all, Christ is first in all things and preeminent and surpasses everything else because, verse 15, look at his relationship to the eternal Father Christ is the image of the invisible God. The word image must be explained. We have other verses. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not a duplicate of God the Father. Let me explain what I mean by that. God the Father is infinite. He is eternal. Christ became incarnate. He became a human being. The infinite and the eternal became infinite finite. He lived for 33 years. The word image here is protokos. What it means is first in rank, first in time. Christ is above time, outside of time, but he came into time. Christ is before everything else. He must be, because he created all things. So this is vitally important. Who is the image? A copy, a replica, a representation of the Father, but in time and in a form that could be seen. Christ made the invisible visible, the unknowable knowable. Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. Now this doesn't mean that Christ was created. If you have a margin in your Bible, it may say instead of firstborn, first. Rank, first in importance, first in priority. He pre existed. Christ didn't become when he became a man, he already was. But he came into time, came into a form that we could relate to, that we could understand. He became the Logos, the Word. He became the Messiah, the Anointed and the Appointed One. So this is what this verse means. Christ's greatness is beyond measure. But he lived for 33 years. Christ's powers were unlimited. But he became hungry and thirsty. And tired. Why? Because he had to. How could we identify with God? How could one stand in my place unless he lived as I lived with all the feelings and the humanity that you and I experience and yet without sin? So in relation, first point, to the Eternal Father, he was a representation, the image-bearer of the Father. We are image-bearers of God, but we're not God. And he was an image-bearer of the Father, yet he was God. Vitally important to understand. Well, our second heading, he is to be understood as preeminent in relation to the Father, verse 15. But verses 16 and 17 help us to understand who he is, that he is preeminent because of his creating work, verse 16. For by Christ, were all things created. That's an absolute statement. He didn't make some things. He didn't make them a little. He made all things. Do you know it's no surprise that since people have started to believe that Christ was not the creator that people have started to doubt that Christ is the eternal God made flesh. For by him were all things created. And if you haven't got the point, verse 16, in heaven, in earth, visible, invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions, Governments, powers, all things were created by him. That's comprehensive. It doesn't leave anything out except for him because he was not created. He pre-existed with the Father, with the Holy Spirit. He created all rulers. All authority is delegated authority. Every king, every queen, president, prime minister, and even dictator, God has given them power for a time. One day every crown that has been given will be laid down at the king of kings' and Lord of Lords throne. He is the creator of angels. That's what this verse is teaching. And so if he created angels, we shouldn't worship angels. Romans chapter 1 teaches, we must not worship the creature, we must worship the creator. Who is over all, who created all things. Just consider the creation for one minute. The wonder and the glory that we should have as creatures. Do you know the earth travels round the sun? Eight times faster than a bullet can come out of a gun. Can you get your head round that? Did you know that there's more insects in one square mile of countryside than all the human beings in the whole of the earth? Eight billion people. In one square mile, there are more insects, more life crawling and creeping. Did you know in one human chromosome there are 20 billion bits of data in ordinary language if you were to put them in books the library would have four thousand books one chromosome and they say there's no creator one chromosome teeming with life and information one square mile teeming with insects. And the earth traveling round the sun so fast that even a gun's bullet doesn't move that fast. Do you think about that today? This is our creator God. And when we understand Christ created all things, is it not reasonable to say he has all authority over your life and my life, over kingdoms, nations? How dare men and women reinvent marriage, reinvent gender, decide that we know better, and think. The puny little man and woman knows better than the one who says, For by him were all things created that are in heaven. Christ in relation to the eternal Father. Christ in relation to his created work. Let me Have a slight digression for a few minutes. Verse 15, I come back to that. It was in the third century that there was a man called Arius from Alexander, and he started to attack the Trinity. We call it Arianism. He taught that Christ was created, that Christ had a beginning that Christ did not always exist, and therefore he is of lower rank than God the Father. Arianism. They had to gather all the bishops and all the heads of all the churches around Rome and the Mediterranean, and they had to have a council. And they studied the scriptures. They realized that this was wrong. This was a great error. Arianism that diminished Christ in importance and power. And they asserted again, Christ is preeminent. Paul was preempting that in AD 63, something that would happen 250 years later And he hammers home the point. No, Christ in relation to the Father. Christ in relation to the creation. And then look at what it says in verse 18. And he is the head. You see what he's teaching? His authority is godly. It's divine. His authority is, he's the creator of everything. And he is the re-creator of you and I. If we've been washed with his precious blood. Let's go back to verse 17. I skipped over it. And he is before all things. He wasn't created. If he was created, how can verse 17 be correct? He didn't have a creation. He wasn't made. He is before all things and by him all things consist, live, move and have their being, as it says in the book of Acts. So let's come to our third point. He is the head of the body. What's that about? The head of the body? He's speaking of the church. Every one of those mentioned in verse 14 who's been washed by his blood, whose price has been paid when Christ died on the cross and who has been forgiven for their sin, is that you? Do you know what I'm speaking about? Are you part of his body? Do you know not everybody here this morning is in the church of Christ. You're in a building, but are you in Christ's church? His church consists of only blood bought, sin forgiven, slavery cancelled people. Is that you? Have you been washed? Have you been transplanted into the kingdom of his dear son? Verse 13, and now verse 18. You are in his body. Verse 18, the church, the church. The word is ecclesia. People who individually Christ has called out, out of the world, out of the power of the kingdom, of the darkness of this world. And one by one, they've been added to his church. What's his church? It's his body. The picture is, he is the head. We are the arms and the legs and the beating heart and the hands and the feet Of Christ. That's extraordinary. Every single child of God has been fitly joined together into the body of Christ. We're not cut off. We're not distant. We're not left behind. We're not to be spare parts. Arms and legs. On the ground, we're to be joined in to Christ. How do you become joined to him? Well, in two ways. First of all, you need to be delivered. Delivered from the power of darkness. Delivered from self-rule. Delivered from Satan's rule. Delivered from this world in believing that this world is everything. You can't do that. Neither can I. That's only something that Christ can do. Christ, the Son of God, who came to build his kingdom. My kingdom is not of this earth, he said. Secondly, that's how we enter the kingdom. Secondly, we must be part of that body. Verse 18, he, Christ, is the head of the body, the church. Blood-bought, redeemed children. Is there somebody here this morning? You have trusted in Christ. You have been saved. Christ has died for your sin, but you're not a member of a church. You're not a member of Christ's church. You're like a leg on its own. We eat legs of chicken, but do we have legs here this morning detached on their own? He is the head of the body, the church, it says elsewhere in Corinthians. That we should be joined to the body, joined to the head. Verse 18 Christ. What's the beginning of this church? Christ is. When he died and when he rose again, there it says it, the firstborn from the dead. Was Christ the first to rise from the dead? In the word of God? No, he wasn't. But he is the first rank. He is the firstborn upon which this church is built when he lived and died and rose again from the dead. Well, here's the crescendo. Paul hasn't even got to his point. This is just the prayer. This is just his desire. At the end of verse 18, we'll finish with this. It's the summation of verses 15 to 18. That, on account of Christ's relationship with the Eternal Father, Christ's relationship with the whole of creation, and Christ's relationship with his church. In all things, Christ is to have the preeminence. Now let's pause there. In our land, once there was a time when Christ did have the preeminence. The name of Christ was feared. If you said that name in the workplace, somebody would tell you to stop blaspheming the name of Christ just this week in the Church of England the church has said you can bless a marriage which is not God's definition it's a contradiction Christ is to have all authority over my life over your life over his church And yet, that authority has been pushed out. No, we're no no better than the Colossian church, which said back in AD 63, I will add, I will take away, Christ is not sufficient. Christ is not authoritative. We can undermine, we can pick and choose. We're not responsible for this land directly. We're not in power. We're not in government. But you are responsible for your life. Who would you have to rule over your life? Who would set the rules? Who would say what should be and what shouldn't be? They call it today the new morality live as you please. If you're a father, have five children with five different women. What a disaster. We're going to reap the effects of it in the years to come. Let's come back to God's Word. That in all things, verse 18, He might have the preeminence, He might set the standard. He might write the rules. He might be in charge because He is co-equal with the Father. Because He made all things. By Him were all things created. And look at the end of verse 16. I promise to finish with this. All things were created by Him. That's everybody here this morning. And for him. What is your life? What's the purpose of your life? Why do you go to work? Why do you raise a family? Why do you have neighbors? For him. That's what it should be. Sadly, in my life, it's not always that. But isn't that what Paul is teaching? That if Christ is co-equal with the Father, if he was the creator of all things, if he is the head of the church, then my life and your life should be for him. Let's close